Hi, Matt here. For most of us, presenting confidently and clearly in our native language is hard enough, but communicating in another language is marked by unique challenges and opportunities for growth. I am super excited to share our new ELL English Language Learning webpage at fastersmarter.io slash ELL. This page is designed to help all non-native English speakers feel less anxious while being more authentic and successful in their communication. In addition to practical advice, you will find Think Fast, Talk Smart episode-specific ELL content, along with links to my favorite English language learning podcast playlist. Please check out fastersmarter.io slash ELL. At the end of the day, Communication is all about connection. Connecting our ideas, connecting to other people, connecting to a higher purpose like an organization's mission or vision. But how do we do this connecting? Mostly, it's through conversation. Join me today as I have a conversation about conversations. My name is Matt Abrahams, and I teach strategic communication at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Welcome to Think Fast, Talk Smart, the podcast. I am super excited today to speak with Allison Wood Brooks. Allison is the O'Brien Associate Professor of Business Administration and Hellman Faculty Fellow at Harvard Business School. Allison's research focuses on the science of conversation and interaction, and she teaches an award-winning course called Talk. Welcome, Allison. I am so excited that we're actually getting to do this. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for reaching out to an East Coast friend. I'm so happy to be here. It is awesome. And I can't wait to get into our conversation. So let's go ahead and get started. I first came to know you and your work when I was writing my book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. I came across your research on reframing anxiety. I know it's from a long while back, but I'd love to have you share this really helpful speaking anxiety management technique. Do you mind sharing? Of course, I would love to. So when I was in grad school, my dissertation was about anxiety. Everybody feels anxious and not everybody needs therapy or medication or that level of treatment, right? And what you really need are just sort of these smaller scale coping strategies to help us deal with the very normal feelings of anxiety that we all feel a lot of the time. So Matt, what makes you feel nervous? Does anything make you feel nervous? Oh, I still get nervous. You know, Allison, it's funny. I get most nervous when I speak in front of folks like you, people who study communication, people who know what I know, know a lot more than I know. That's when I get nervous. Other times I've learned to manage anxiety through techniques like you're going to introduce and others, but I still get nervous. How about you? Do you get nervous too? Oh my gosh, totally. Yeah. And I think we need to actually, that was a very, you, you, you put a compliment in there. So thank you. That was very nice. <laughs> I think we're right to feel anxious. Not only when we talk to people that we admire and, you know, we don't want to mess it up, but also anytime there's uncertainty and any sort of lack of control, which conversation is, that's sort of how it's built, right? Like we're co-constructing this interaction right now. I don't know what you're going to say. I don't know what you're thinking and I can't possibly know. So that uncertainty is always there and lack of control is there because I can't control how you react to me or what you think of me. So really conversation is a very understandable place where you would feel anxious. There are lots of other tasks that make us feel anxious as well. So we tried a very 
simple coping strategy, a very simple intervention. And the question was, can people reframe their anxious feelings as excitement? And it's a really simple idea. But the reason that it works is because when we feel anxious, we have this crazy instinct that we should try and calm down like really powerful. Everybody feels like they should calm down when they're anxious. And that's hard, right? That, that, that would require that we mitigate the physiological signs of anxiety. So your racing heart, sweaty palms, spiked cortisol in your body, you're trying to like push those down as well as move from the negative valence, right? Like a negative emotion, like anxiety and move into the positive zone of calmness. And that two-step move, reducing the physiological signals and moving from negative to positive, it's pretty much impossible. It's very, very hard, especially the physiological component of it. So instead, what reframing as excitement does is it allows you to stay in that high arousal zone. You're not trying to combat your automatic physiological processes, but instead you're just doing this mental reframe from negative to positive. I love that it's so simple. And in fact, it really is. You just say, hey, these feelings I'm having could represent excitement. And and then you can begin thinking about what is exciting in this opportunity. I'm excited to share my information. I'm excited to contribute to this conversation. And that allows you to move away from fighting yourself to calm down, to not be nervous. And, And I have found this very helpful for myself and in the students I teach and the people I coach. So I really appreciate not only you explaining it now, but for just doing the work originally. Oh, thanks, Matt. I'm excited to keep talking about it. Let's go. (laughs) No, it's great. Well, talking about talk, you teach one of the most popular electives at Harvard's Business School, and it's called Talk. Can you tell us what the premise of your class is and highlight maybe one or two key takeaways? Yeah, I love teaching this course. TALK is an acronym. It's T-A-L-K. And it stands for Topics, Asking, Levity, and Kindness. And what the course aspires to do is help people talk just a little bit better. I started out in the business school at Harvard teaching negotiation. I started to get a little frustrated is... We have such a focus, both as scientists and in public discourse, on difficult conversations or so-called difficult conversations. And this conjures conversations like negotiations or delivering constructive feedback or giving hard advice or right these things that we come to think of as difficult. What I've realized through my life and teaching and through my research is that even easy conversations are difficult. Like we don't just suck at the hard ones. We suck at the easy ones too. (laughs) They can be so stressful. Yes. Yes. And, and, And once you delve into the complexity and the nuance that lives and breathes within each conversation, you start to see why it's hard, even even when our goals align, even when our only goal is to have fun, even that can be co- sort of hard, right? Like yeah. we might say the wrong thing. We don't know how our other, pe- other people are feeling, what they're thinking about. And so that's what that's sort of the humble and extremely ambitious promise of the course. Let's make each conversation just a little bit better, but in accumulation over all the conversations of your life, that could make a massive difference for you and your career and for the people you love. 
I have, as you well know, I've spent a lot of time recently talking about these spontaneous moments of communication because a lot of what's taught in your institution, at my institution, is how to do formal planned communicating. And, and this notion of most of what we do in business and our personal lives happens in the moment and happens in conversation. And I love that you're studying it. Anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I'm a huge fan of structure and communication. I think it can really help us in many ways. And I know you think a lot about structure as well. Can you share your thoughts and research into structure of conversations and how we can better leverage this knowledge to improve those conversations? Yeah, of course. I would love to. When I hear the word structure, it triggers so very many ideas and, and thoughts for me that I actually wanted to turn this one around on you, Matt, and ask you, when you think of the word structure, especially in the context of communication, what types of things are you thinking about? Great question. For me, a structure is nothing more than a logical connection of ideas. It's a bridging of ideas. And not only is it the form that the communication takes, but it is the way you think about the communication. So having a structure helps solve one of the two fundamental problems I believe we have in communication, what to say and how to say it. What does your research tell us about structure? In my research, I'm really interested in topics. And so what topics are is you take a chunk of turns. So you ask me this question, what do you think about structure? And so turns are one organizing structure. So we can chunk the turns that we've taken on this topic into a topic. And that opens up all new ideas and thoughts about, well, how do we choose the best topics? And how do we manage the boundaries between topics? The topic heuristic is very intuitive to the human mind. What we don't realize is that we're making these micro decisions constantly in our conversations to manage topics. So every, literally every time you speak, you're choosing whether to stay on this topic or switch to something else. So I'm trying to be a very polite podcast guest and answer your question about structure, but I could jag and start talking about the Kardashians, right? Like that's an option that I have. So that's topics, right? Topics chunk our turns into thematic, logical chunks. And then even still within this like mechanical bucket, we think a lot about what, and you said this nicely earlier, what we talk about. There's actually a lot of more complexity there than we might intuitively realize. There's actually three streams of content. The first is verbal, the words we say to each other. The second is nonverbal, and that's everything about how your body's moving, your hand gesticulation, your facial expressions, your eye gaze, everything that's not that you perceive visually about other people is nonverbal. Then there's this third bucket that a lot of people don't know about or think about as a separate category that's extremely important for the structure of conversations, and that's paralanguage. And it's everything acoustic about how we're talking to each other that's not words. So words are the carriers of meaning, but paralanguage also can change the meaning. If I say, oh, I love that, Matt, that's very different than I love that, Matt. I love it. It changes it entirely. And it's just an acoustic property, the tone of my voice, how fast I'm saying it, the pausing, whether I laugh while I'm doing it. And there's so many aspects of paralanguage that, that can change. I want to come back to small talk because small talk is something that many of us struggle with. The chit chat that we have at, at mixers or at coffee meetings or, or even cocktail parties can be really challenging for people. 
What advice and guidance do you have to make small talk less challenging? And are there certain choices? You talked about conversation being a series of choices that we can make that can help small talk go more smoothly. Yes. Small talk gets a bad rap, man. It's not fair. It gets a really bad rap. The purpose of small talk is to help us coordinate easily around more interesting topics, right? This Everything about conversation is this sort of coordination kerfuffle. We're, we're trying to coordinate with another human mind. Like, what should we be talking about? How should we be interacting? What do I feel safe sharing with you, etc.? Small talk is really useful. It's the predictable way that we open open up this really crazy experience we're about to have together. And so I think it gets too bad a rap. It serves a very important sort of search process. So if you think of small talk as a search and really lean into it as this like enjoyable search process, then it can become less awkward. I like that notion of reframing for sure. And I think that can help. And when you see it as serving a purpose beyond just this awkward, I'm standing next to you and need to say something. I've come to learn, and I'm curious if you have other insights into this, that in small talk, our just the decisions we make can really influence how the conversation goes. And I've heard that there are two choices people often make, either supporting choices of the topic that's being discussed or shifting choices. Do you have insight into that and perhaps other types of choices that we can make to make things better or worse? Yes. We study topic selection a lot and we call it topic management. Two choices is actually a, a, a good heuristic, but it's oversimplifying what we're doing. So what we, how we study this, we study topic selection on a turn-by-turn basis. So every time someone talks, they're making a micro decision. And you can imagine it as like, I'm staying on this topic. I'm going to support the topic or I'm going to switch. That's a good heuristic. But actually, there's some gray area in between those two poles, right? So there's also, I'm going to passively let you stay on this topic versus I'm going to actively encourage us to stay on this topic. I'm going to say, oh my God, that's amazing. Tell me more. Which is very different than like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, right? Like that's, that's a big difference. And the same with switching. You can imagine moves that are very subtly drifting that are almost ambiguous. Like we're not sure if we're moving on to a new topic or if it's just a sort of like an adjacent fuzzy drift away from the current one. And then there are really aggressive switches to new ones where we're talking about conversation with each other. And then I'm like, and also let me tell you about my chicken salad sandwich. Wow. So yummy. Everyone should eat chicken salad. There's like lots of shades of when we're making these choices about how to manage topics, there's like shades of things you can do to support, as you said, or switch to to something new. We can all feel when a topic like the juice is like dried up from a topic. What we find in our research is that people who assertively switch in those moments are great conversationalists, right? If you can sense if there's longer pauses, if there's awkward laughter, if people start repeating things they've already said on the topic, it's there's signals that it's time to switch. And so doing so assertively is something we can all do a little bit better. We, we have this instinct to be a little afraid to switch topics because it feels rude or abrupt or maybe they have more to say when in fact it's much safer and usually a good idea to switch to something new because boredom and stagnation are bigger risks than we know. So I, I'm not going to take the advice you just gave and, and <laughs> abruptly switch topics because I'm hearing a theme across several of the things you've talked about. And it's really about being sensitive to what's needed in the moment. And to me, this thoughtfulness, this slowing down, 
is related really to listening. You and I study communication and there's this notion that in communication, it's about what you're saying. But so often I'm coming to realize it's about what you're listening and hearing. And I know in a recent chat you and I had, you shared with me that you're really beginning to focus your research on listening. And I'm curious if you could share a little bit about how you see listening and how we can become better listeners. It's so funny that you say this, Matt, because my my course is called Talk. And the great irony of it is that I think it should really be called Listen. Like that's one of the biggest takeaways from it is that it's so hard to be a good listener and so very important. So we have some really exciting research about listening that's just come out. I work on this topic with a PhD student here at Harvard named Hannah Collins and a co-author named Mikey Omens and my colleague at the Harvard Kennedy School named Julia Minson. And what we realized is the human mind is built to wander. It's not built to focus in on one person for long stretches of time. And yet that's what conversation demands of our mind is to really pay attention to those three streams of content that I mentioned earlier, the verbal content, all those nonverbal cues, and also the paralanguage. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant, right? We're bombarded by information and that information is very interesting. It often makes our minds make connections to random ideas and then we want to elaborate and think about something else. It's tremendous work to stay focused on a conversation partner as the whole conversation unfolds. And so what we have found in our research is a key, a key piece of this is like, if you're putting in the effort to listen attentively to somebody, show it to them. Don't just assume that they know. And so there's decades and decades of work on active listening. This focuses on things like eye contact and nodding and smiling and laughing at the right times and leaning towards your partner. These sort of nonverbal cues that you're listening to somebody. And that's all great, but it's great as a very basic starting point. What we're finding now is actually expressing your attentive listening with your words is what makes someone such a compelling communicator. So I heard you earlier talking that you also eat the same lunch every day. And and the only way that I can say that now is because I was listening to you. And so remembering to bring it up later or express affirmation and say, that's so interesting that you eat the same lunch every day. Why do you do that? And asking a follow-up question. These are undeniable cues that you've actually heard someone process what they were saying and you're repeating it back to them. So these are the sort of high fidelity cues of good listening. And often people put in the work to listen to someone and they just forget to show it. They forget to say it out loud and it's a huge missed opportunity. So the ways to do this are through things like follow-up questions, callbacks to earlier topics, paraphrasing what someone has said, or if someone has said something that's confusing, again, revisiting those repair strategies. Like, can you ask a question that helps to fix a quick misunderstanding or this sort of rift in your shared reality? Can you do it right then and there? Like you say, oh, I heard you say something about listening. I didn't quite understand. Can you explain that a little bit more to me? All of these things show that you're listening attentively to someone and that you care. I think the gift of listening is a true gift. And having to demonstrate it through your words is really, really important. And as somebody who hosts a podcast and teaches people how to interview and to run panels, all the skills that you just talked about are critical in that success. Matt, are you always caught in like the meta loop? Do you feel like you're floating over the room watching yourself? It's like teach about, you're communicating about communication. 
the meta communication is really critical to becoming a better communicator. But I, I absolutely agree. And I actually describe it just like you did, that to become a better communicator, you have to be engaged in it and present in the moment, but at the same time, observing it from above to see what's going on and what's needed. And really effective communicators learn how to toggle between those two areas of focus to be effective. And it takes practice and time to do it. You know, Allison, this conversation has been absolutely fantastic. I have learned a lot. I'd love to ask you the same three questions I ask everybody on this podcast. Are you ready for that? I was born ready. <laughs> I'm sure. I know that for sure. <laughs> Question one, if you were to capture the best communication advice you have ever received as a five to seven word presentation slide title, what would it be? One thing that sticks with me, this was from a professional matchmaker named Rachel Greenwald, who I love and adore and who also teaches communication. She uses this catchphrase, be more interested than interesting. I think that's a really powerful bit of advice, especially going back to the notion of small talk and chit chat. It's really not about you. It's about them. And I love that idea about being interested rather than interesting. And even more profoundly, I know that we both teach about communication and conversation, but to me, conversation is just the vehicle by which we sort of express our humanity to each other and our caring for other people. And so this idea of being more interested in others than trying to be interesting yourself is a good nudge to move beyond. It's not about you, right? It's about the people that surround you. And what you're building with them, for sure. Yeah. I am going to be really curious to hear your answer to this one. Number two, who is a communicator you admire and why? It's such a great question. There are so many communicators I admire, Matt. I mean, I admire you as a communicator and for many reasons. Perhaps the most embarrassing one is because you have such a lovely timbre to your voice. It's, it's, it's like pleasant to hear all the time. Why, thank you. My, <laughs> yes, we should get you to sing on this, on this podcast. No, that would be a disaster. I think my real answer here is Stephen Colbert. In my course, we watch a, a few examples of his live conversation with other people. The first one is a conversation he has with uh, comedian Ricky Gervais. And they're talking, they're debating the existence of God. Have you seen this Ooh, conversation? I have not. So Ricky Gervais is trained as a philosopher. And what I love about it is that it's like this super serious topic. And yet they find these moments of levity that are just so amazing. And even beyond the levity, they show incredible graciousness to the other person's perspective. Wonderful. Question number three, what are the first three ingredients that go into a successful communication recipe? This is so hard. It's so hard to pick. As a scientist, I can tell you what the most robust predictors are of a good conversation. It's hard to narrow it down to three. I think it comes down to choosing good topics and making any topic good, asking good questions, finding moments of levity, and expressing our kindness to other people. But that's an easy answer. So that's not going to be my answer. My real answer, I talk about this. I have a book coming out next year. And so in the book, we talk about minding the gap, GAP. So GAP are these three ingredients of gratitude. So being grateful for your conversation partners, even giving you the time, the honor of their time and to be in their presence. The A is acceptance. 
So every great conversation starts from a place of acceptance. It's sort of this mantra of yes and that we borrow from stand-up comedians. And then the P is patience. So knowing that we're always going to make mistakes, being patient with ourselves and with other people and trying to fix them. Well, I cannot wait for your book to come out. And I really appreciate you filling in those gaps for us today and helping us understand better how we can communicate and converse and really listen so that we can engage demonstrate warmth and learn from others. Allison, this was a tremendous pleasure to have you on and it was great to chat with you. I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Think Fast, Talk Smart, the podcast. This episode was produced by Jenny Luna, Michael Riley, and me, Matt Abrahams. Our theme music is composed by Floyd Wander. We invite you to find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to tell a friend or two to listen in as well. Subscribe and go ahead and rate and review the show as well. Finally, join us on LinkedIn where our conversation continues. Hi, Matt here. We'd like to ask for your help. One of our big goals for this year is to bring Think Fast, Talk Smart to more and more people around the globe. Please help us by sharing Think Fast, Talk Smart with your friends, coworkers, and family. Also, be sure to rate and follow us. Finally, join our Think Fast, Talk Smart communities on LinkedIn and Instagram. Thanks for your help.